You are listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we'll be discussing fad diets. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. My name is Laura Creek Newman, and I'll be your host today. I am joined by Lauren Bailey. Hi. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Jem Newman. Hi. Before we get to our main topic tonight of fad diets, we've got a little bit of listener mail that we will address, so I'll pass it over to Jem. So we got some mail recently, and I'll, uh, I'll just read it here. Hello, Winnipeg skeptics. I'm seeking support in pressuring the Manitoba government to change the Public Schools Act. Currently, 25 students in a school is all that is needed to impose religious instruction on everyone. Students that don't wish to participate are being made to sit on the floor in the hallway. My son has academic struggles, and he is missing out on valuable classroom time to accommodate religious instruction. Below is a letter I sent to Manitoba Education and Training. Please help me advocate for change. And the letter follows. It reads, Good morning. I'm writing today about the Public Schools Act, specifically the Instruction in Religion and Religious Exercises and Patriotic Observances sections. My son is non-religious. His school is practicing religious instruction. During that time, 30-minute periods, he is sitting on the floor in the hallway reading a book. He attends a school with hundreds of students, yet a minimum of 25 students have dictated that my son will now lose 30 minutes of classroom time each week to accommodate religious instruction. My son is struggling academically, and he desperately needs all the classroom time that he can get. He needs explicit instruction from his teacher if he's going to improve, but he's not getting that. Year after year, his struggles have been compounding, and missing out on valuable class time is restricting his access to an education. The average school day is about six hours long. Take away an hour for lunch and another 40 minutes for morning and afternoon recess. That means there is a maximum of four and a third hours in the classroom each day. On a day that religious instruction is taking place, my son is missing 11.5% of his classroom instruction for the day, based on the decision to accommodate a minimum of 25 students in a school with hundreds of students. I'm requesting that this policy be reviewed and revised to take other students into account. 25 students is an arbitrary number that does not accurately represent the student body. I would encourage an update to indicate a certain percentage of the student body to address the variable size of school populations. I would further encourage this percentage minimum to be greater than 50% so that the desire for religious instruction would be held by a majority of students. Children have cost-free access to churches in the evenings and on the weekends if they require religious instruction. They do not have access to a language arts or mathematics instructor at that time without significant additional cost to families. I do not harbor any ill will to families that prefer for their child to have a religious education. I just feel that non-religious students should not miss out on important class time to accommodate it. What do you folks think about that? This parent is going to have a lot of difficulty with the current political climate in Manitoba in getting anything changed. Oh boy. (laughs) And how. (laughs) I was just looking up some records of the people in charge, and it's an uphill battle. Yeah. That being said, they seem to be willing to cut anything, so... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) 
particularly those vital services. So it might not be as hard as as they anticipated. That said, I thought that it was a really well-worded um, mm-hmm. request on the part of the parent and very respectful and it seems very reasonable. Yeah, and it was very explicit. Like, this is the harm that is happening and yeah. this is what I want you to do. Yeah. And 25 students just seems so, like the parent said, arbitrary. Maybe that was from when there was smaller schools, rural schools maybe. So this provision goes back a ways, uh, and one of the distinctions that I think it's important to make is whether we're talking about comparative religion or teaching one religion in particular. Oh, I now, can bet what this is. <laughs> obviously, it, it, the language of the act, which I'll quote from uh, in a moment, is phrased to not uh, invoke any particular religion, uh, but uh, we are not, it does not appear that we are talking about a comparative religion class here. I mean... From my perspective, religion has a major influence on society, and basic knowledge of world religions can provide important context to a variety of fields, mm-hmm. like if you're talking about history. Uh, we live in a multicultural, multi-religious society, and it's important to learn about the experiences and beliefs of others. For these reasons and others, I'm in favor of world religions courses being taught in public schools, but... The Manitoba Public Schools Act doesn't appear to mandate consideration of multiple religious perspectives at all, which I see as a major problem. I'll just quote from it here. Instruction in religion may be conducted by any school in Manitoba if authorized by a bylaw passed by the school board. If a petition requesting that religious instruction be given in a school is presented to the school board and is signed by the parents or guardians of at least 10 children attending the school having one or two classrooms, or the parents or guardians of at least 25 children attending the school having three or more classrooms, the school board shall pass a bylaw authorizing instruction in religion in compliance with the petition. Ooh, that's so broad. Instruction in religion, when authorized under or permitted by this act, may take place during school hours at such a time and on such days as approved by the bylaw of the school board, but in any case shall not exceed two and a half hours per week, and shall be conducted by a clergyman, priest, rabbi, or other spiritual leader, or by a representative of parents recognized by the school board as constituting a religious group, or by any person, including a teacher, duly authorized by such clergyman, priest, rabbi, or other spiritual leader. Where the parent or guardian of a pupil who is under the age of majority does not desire the participation of the pupil in religious instruction, the pupil shall be excused from participating in the instruction. And where a pupil over the age of majority does not wish to participate in religious instruction, he shall be excused from participating therein. (laughs) Okay. So I posted this to our Facebook group, and... um, Some of our local members pointed out that the requirement that classes be taught by clergy members or their appointed representatives uh, might be indicative of bias in this instruction. Mm. For myself, I'm not convinced that the provision mandating that the instruction be given by a clergy person is necessarily wrong, uh, provided that a multi-faith perspective is required, which here it doesn't seem to be. It would also be good to have uh, free thought movements included in this. Uh, It's possible that the requirement that a clergy member provide the instruction would serve as a bulwark against a teacher of one faith going on and on about the evils of other faiths, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the act doesn't seem to require a comparative study of religions, which I see as the heart of the problem. So I am uh, in favor of this, uh, this petition to Manitoba Education and Training. 
So if our listeners are interested in uh, getting involved in this, they can uh, connect with us on Facebook. Uh, We have a Winnipeg Skeptics discussion group. Uh, You can also uh, find us on Twitter. And uh, I would encourage anyone to contact Manitoba Education and Training and voice their concerns uh, over the Public Schools Act. And if you're not local to Manitoba, uh, take a look at your local regulations and see Mm -hmm. if they're also in need of amendment. That's what I was just going to ask. Did we take a look at any other provinces? Or, Well, uh, it, it could be worse. Uh, <laughs> Ontario and Alberta both have publicly funded Catholic school yes. boards. <laughs> My ex-husband went to Catholic school in Ontario. Did, uh, did any of you guys have religious instruction in schools when you were in elementary school? I did not. I don't recall. I do remember that you could sign up to get the Gideon Bibles mm-hmm. yeah. in elementary school. I don't know if there was any religious teaching, though. I feel like maybe there was a couple of times, but not n- nothing that really stuck out in my mind, and it definitely wasn't consistent. Until grade four, we had the mandatory Lord's Prayer after yeah. O Canada every morning. And God Save the Queen. Yeah. I never had that. <laughs> well, <laughs> after God grade four, we had a minute of silence. I'm not sure, but I definitely had that same progression yeah. happen. I did not. When I was in Ontario, and even when I came to Manitoba, we didn't have the Lord's Prayer. We didn't have God Save the Queen either. Although, apparently, my brother, when he changed schools, he got God Save the Queen. So I think maybe my school was just missing it, or there was some sort of change there. The only weird thing was, when I was in Ontario, one of my schools, every day after O Canada, they sang, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've had this exact discussion on before. But I guess I was more curious about, like, actual classes, Um, because I remember at at least up until grade three, they would send home a form and your parents could check off whether you wanted to go to catechism or if you wanted other religious instruction or you could be the other group, which didn't get any religious instruction. Interesting. It it was, I just remembered, oh my goodness, I, (laughs) I, I can't remember her name. But I remember this little old lady with gray hair who used to come in my grade one and two class, because we were split classes, Mm -hmm. and give us religious instruction. Well, isn't that special? I do not remember anybody opting out, and it was all very much like New Testament, Jesus' love kind of things. I think one one of the daycares that I attended was actually attached to a church. You know, we were in the church sometimes then. Uh, Memories of my childhood are dim. You grizzled old sailor, you. Yes. <laughs> uh, I was in the the other religious education course, which was sort of a broadly Christian but not Catholic group. Um, <laughs> and we the, would, the group that's going to hell. Yeah, so we learned about like what the Lord's Prayer actually means, because we recited it every day, but none of us had any idea what any of those words meant. And I remember we talked about, like, what foods are talked about in the Bible, and there was talk of, like, bringing some of them in for us to eat. <laughs> so that's, like, my, my clearest memory of that. And there was lots of, like, coloring pictures of Bible characters. <laughs> um, but being from, like, a small French Catholic town, most of the kids in my class went to the cat- catechism class. And then there was, like, one or two kids who got to just color, like, non-religious pictures in the principal's <laughs> office. <laughs> so... I'm not sure about the larger parts of Ontario, but in northern Ontario, after 13 years of Catholic school, I had to teach my ex-husband what catechism was. (laughs) He went to Catholic school 
And it wasn't very Catholic. I mean, like, was it a pre-Vatican II Catholic school? Was the liturgy in English? I I mean, I don't think it was prior to the 60s that he was going to school, but... No. Anyway, I was just curious about other people's experience with religious instruction. I'm pretty sure that they phased it out before I hit, like, grade four or five, because I don't really remember much after grade two or three. But that was an interesting period when my mom would be like, well, I guess you're other Christian. <laughs> you're definitely not Catholic. Thank you for giving me flashbacks. To- <laughs> I'm going to have to ask my mom if she remembers who that lady was. Before we get into each of our segments, we also want to do a quick little in the news uh, segment because there have been a number of interesting nutrition related studies that have come out over the last couple of weeks or so that uh, are definitely peripherally related to, to the types of things that we're talking about. So I'll pass it over to Lauren to start with. I was excited because I found this one and posted it to our group Slack. Like, yay, I found a thing. It matches what we're talking about. <laughs> it was an article in CBC, and it talked about a new study about gluten-free. A study produced by the Harvard Medical School, under the direction of Dr. Andrew Chan, has recently been released that states that gluten-free diets should not be promoted to prevent heart disease among people without celiac disease or gluten sensitivity. In fact, because people who are avoiding gluten have diets that are generally lacking in whole grains their risk for heart disease may be higher. The study was observational in nature, so people were not assigned different diets to follow, so we can't really determine cause and effect. Besides the heart disease angle, people turn to gluten-free diets to lose weight quickly. But if you substitute gluten-free items that are higher in fat, sugar, and calories, you're going to gain more weight, which is what the study found. So my celiac friends are really happy with the abundance of gluten-free items that are now available, but most folks It's about 98% of the population, according to medical statistics. They should stick to a healthful diet that includes whole grains, lean proteins, fresh fruits, and vegetables. So if you don't have a pressing medical need to not eat gluten, eat gluten. It's delicious. It really is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really good. Yeah. One of the things that happens, especially for people who are on the gluten-free bandwagon for the weight loss or non-celiac, non-GI related effects, is that the composition, the quality of their diet doesn't actually change. So if they were eating a lot of processed foods, a lot of convenience foods, a lot of things like that, well, they just switched to gluten-free versions, like you said, Lauren, Mm -hmm. which are now available. But you know what? A cookie is still a cookie. It's still a high-fat, high-sugar snack food. It doesn't matter if you get your donuts out of the freezer section because they're gluten-free. Right, exactly. They're still highly processed. They're still uh, low in nutrition and high in calories for what they are. And uh, they get they get this health halo, but they don't deserve it. Yeah. So it's one thing if the quality of the diet actually changes. And if you go from eating gluten and you change to other types of gluten-free whole grains, like you move to things like whole grain millet and quinoa and whole grain rice and, and that. But it's entirely different if you move to just instant gluten-free pasta and mm-hmm. instant gluten-free oats and gluten-free sugary breakfast cereal. It's still sugary stuff. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Lauren. Yeah. Uh, CBC. Excellent. I I love their health section. They Mm -hmm. often hit it on the mark. Not all the time, but a lot of times. Because this is something that comes up in uh, skeptic circles a lot, uh, I noticed you mentioned processed. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the problems with processed foods? Sure. I'm going to do that very briefly. The term process gets used a lot. It's another one of those buzzwords. It's kind of the antithesis of the clean, right? Either your food is clean or natural or it's processed and evil, something like that. 
processing is a really broad term, and that's really <laughs> important for everybody to realize because there are foods that are very, very nutritious that are processed. So something like canned diced tomatoes with no salt added are quite nutritious, but they're a processed food. Frozen green beans are also a processed food, right? A broken down chicken. A broken down chicken is a processed food. Cheese is a processed food. It doesn't come out of the cow like that. <laughs> if it does... The cow has <laughs> That poor cow. That poor, poor cow is all I can say. So there's a lot of levels of processing. We need to look at it more like a spectrum of processing. So we talk about minimally processed. Those are the types of foods where the processing is done to prolong shelf life, doesn't detract from a lot of the nutrition, and actually helps reduce in food waste because it means that it's not going bad in the consumer's house because frozen green beans can last a long time, whereas fresh green beans don't last so long, especially if one happens to be moldy already. Two days sometimes. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so it ends up being a lot of food waste. So a lot of that minimal processing really helps everything. And according to the Santa Clarita diet, your flash frozen is just as good as fresh. I can cook that for you, sweetheart. I'm fine. Uh... <laughs> So that's minimally processed. And then the more processing that something gets, it gets into processed and then ultra processed. Those are the things that we're really trying to minimize in our diet. So those are the things that are instant, that come out of the fridge or freezer ready to eat. Sometimes they're shelf stable ready to eat. Um, the things like your pop tarts and your pastries and a lot of those kinds of foods. Those are the ultra processed foods. They have a lot of, if you look in the ingredients list in those, I am not a fan of saying if you can't pronounce it, you shouldn't eat it, that's silly. But you can tell by looking at an ingredients list if there's a lot of ingredients for a fairly basic food and they all sound like components of food as opposed to food, yeah. then that's a sign that it's really, really processed and probably not the most helpful thing. So ultra processed is what we're looking for. If you're not sure where that's getting into your diet, talk to your friendly neighborhood dietitian. We can help. As long as they have funding to have appointments open to you. Well... Yes. <laughs> I also wanted to mention a new study that came out uh, just last week, I believe, very briefly. This one's about intermittent fasting. So this has been a diet regime that has gained popularity over the last few years. Some of the claims have been that it improves weight loss, it improves energy, it improves metabolic markers like insulin resistance, uh, cholesterol levels, inflammation markers, things like that. So what's different about the study that just came out in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association is that this was a long-term study. So like most nutrition-related studies, previous studies were somewhere in the weeks to three to six months range. Yeah. So that's pretty standard, especially for a trial where you're providing food in a controlled environment because it's really hard to get participants to come in every day and eat only what you're giving them. And it's expensive. And it's expensive. So definitely there's reasons why that happens. So this study was a year-long study, wow. and that's what makes it different. In terms of what it found in this scenario, they did alternate day fasting. Basically, it says that intermittent fasting didn't have any significant additional weight loss or uh, improvement in metabolic markers compared to the control group or the just general caloric restriction group. So they had a control group, they had a a uh, lower calorie diet group that they just ate a low calorie diet every day and then the alternate day fasting. So they didn't find that a lot of those purported health benefits really panned out over the year. 
in terms of the weight regain, which as we know, when we lose weight, the body works to regain weight, there were no significant differences in the amount of weight that was regained between any of the groups. And, and that's pretty understandable given human physiology. They did find that they had more dropouts from the intermittent fasting group compared no, to the other two groups. <laughs> and the way that this intermittent fasting was done is they had everybody eating only 75% of their required calories. The intermittent fasting group did 25% of the calories in one meal on one day and then 125% the next day, and they would go back and forth. So they had a 38% dropout rate compared to 29 and 26% for the uh, calorie restriction and control groups. I so, feel hungry just listening to that. Oh, gosh. Like one day you get a large amount of food, and the next day, almost nothing. One meal no, in the middle why? of the day. I could not do it. I, I know I could never do I it. I really want to take these study results back to high school, Lauren, and, like, shake her by the shoulders and tell her <laughs> to eat some damn food. Yeah. It's not to say that intermittent fasting doesn't work for anybody, because with any nutrition intervention, there's going to be some people that do really great on it, and they love it, and... That's fine, but then there's going to be people that don't do great on things. And they're miserable forever. And they're miserable. Really what this is, is it shows that on a longer term, at least in this group of individuals, the purported benefits didn't pan out. So that's just really interesting, especially for uh, all the diet books that have been sold, pushing uh, alternate day fasting or mm -hmm. intermittent fasting. I'm pretty excited to get on to our topics here because we're talking about diets and nutrition, particularly fad diets. Diets that have become very popular that may or may not have any scientific basis behind them. So we are going to go to Ashlyn to start with what I would say is probably the king of or the monarch of, of diets right now, the paleo diet. I would say the clan leader. Yeah. <laughs> So I thought I would start by outlining the paleo diet premises and rules. Unfortunately, that turned out to be more difficult than I expected. <laughs> uh, so from thepaleodiet.com. The paleo diet is based upon everyday modern foods that mimic the food groups of our pre-agricultural hunter-gatherer ancestors. The following seven fundamental characteristics of hunter-gatherer diets will help to optimize your health, minimize your risk of chronic disease, and lose weight. So the first one is higher protein intake. Um, they say that typically protein comprises 15% of the calories in the average Western diet, but uh, 19 to 35% in hunter-gatherer diets. So meat, seafood, and other animal products are supposed to be a staple of your diet. The second one is lower carbohydrate intake and lower glycemic index. So non-starchy fresh fruits and vegetables are good. They should provide about 35 to 45% of your daily calories. Uh, high fiber intake is the third one, but not from grains. That's not good. So only from vegetables or leafy uh, greens. Uh, the next one is moderate to higher fat intake, dominated by monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats with a balanced omega-3 and omega-6 fats. Then there's a higher potassium and lower sodium intake. Um, they claim that unprocessed fresh foods naturally contain five to ten times more potassium than sodium, and Stone Age bodies were adapted to this ratio. They also only live to about 26. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> this is a weird one. Net dietary alkaline load that balances dietary acid. 
Of course. Oh. <laughs> so, after digestion, all foods present either a net acid or alkaline load to the kidneys. Acid producers are meats, fish, grains, legumes, cheese, and salt. Alkaline-yielding foods are fruits and veggies. And chalk. A lifetime of excessive dietary acid may promote bone and muscle loss, high blood pressure, and increased risk for kidney stones, and may aggravate asthma and exercise-induced asthma. That's a weird one. Uh, the last one they mention is a higher intake of vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, and plant phytochemicals. Yay. Um, and basically they say that you should do this by eating grass-fed meat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so dinner at the Prospector every night. Yeah. Oh, they have the most <laughs> amazing meat. Increase your plant phytochemicals by eating more meat. <laughs> yes. Well, even just the fat ratios. Okay, it's supposed to be dominated by omega-6 and omega-3, from beef, which is mostly saturated fat? What? Yeah. Don't well, they did say fish. Well. They did say fish. I, I assume they don't want you to eat the whole fish. You just squeeze the Oh, fat God. Out. Oh, no. <laughs> Do not ring the fish. Oh, no. Okay. So, generally, the, the basic idea is that the diet consists of meat, healthy oils, which are unprocessed oils, which doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> Uh, so, like, avocado oil is good, but uh, canola oil is bad. Like, because I'm pretty sure our prehistoric ancestors were squeezing the oil out of avocados. Absolutely. I'm sure that avocados looked identical to how they do now. Oh, yeah. Uh, healthy oils, fruit, vegetables, and nuts. They say generally the diet requires that there be no grains, dairy, added salt, or legumes, including peanuts, beans, lentils, and soybeans. F that. <laughs> do they give an explanation why? Kind of. All of those? Okay. Let's hear it. It's not good. <laughs> I want to hear it anyway. Okay, so these seem to be the cornerstones of the diet, although even these are somewhat flexible depending on how hard the naturalistic fallacy is depended upon. Um, <laughs> elsewhere, the accepted and unaccepted foods become a bit murky. One guy, Dr. Lauren Cordain, who is widely recognized as the founder of the paleo movement, is called the most vociferous anti-potato crusader on the planet. I hate him. While Rob Wolf, a former research biochemist and author of The Paleo Solution, says they're okay to eat sparingly, as long as you earn them through exercise. So Dr. Ron Rosedale, who, according to his own website, is listed as one of the top 17 low-carb and paleo doctors with blogs on the authority nutrition site that comes up on the first page of a Google search for paleo doctor, says... <laughs> These are his own credentials. <laughs> he says, Don't worry about getting enough carbohydrates. They're everywhere, so avoiding them completely is impossible. That said, you don't need any at all. Contrary to popular belief, there is no lower limit to the amount of sugar your body needs. So just, <laughs> Laura's just staring at me. So just watch out for those free-floating carbs. They'll just stick to you. Like thetans. Um, some of the blogs say that red wine is the closest thing we have to paleolithic drinks, so go for it. Woo. Others say alcohol of any kind is a complete no-go. Uh, honey is either completely okay or completely not okay, depending on which blog you read. Maple syrup seems to be okay across the board, but table sugar is definitely the worst thing ever. Yeah. I thought potatoes were the worst thing ever. Well, that one guy really hates potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> so potato sugar would just be right out. It's like counting to five. So this is all supposedly based on the idea that 10,000 years ago, we became the humans that we are today. So 
evolution sort of attained the peak. We figured out how to make stone tools. We started eating a ton of meat and then evolution just stopped because we were perfect. And so we should eat what we were eating then because that is what our bodies are optimally designed to take in and digest. That's actually really interesting because I'm going to talk about a recent study that completely contradicts that at the end of my segment. Yay! (laughs) This is why apparently you can't have legumes or lentils and things because we didn't cultivate them back then and grain is out because we weren't an agricultural society we were a hunter-gatherer at the time back then grains didn't exist no not at all (laughs) they hadn't been invented yet okay uh paleo diet practitioners make many claims including that this diet is the one our bodies are best able to cope with due to evolutionary constraints that it will eliminate heart disease diabetes cancer and a whole host of other health problems and of course that it will help you lose weight As one blogger pointed out, though, just Google paleo desserts and you'll find an amazing array of fudge and cake and cookies that technically comply with the paleo diet as long as they're made with coconut sugar or maple syrup. (laughs) Excellent. Because, again, paleolithic people were doing the processing necessary to turn coconuts into sugar? Yeah, and there are even archaeological finds that indicate that people were pounding up and eating grain like 30,000 years ago. Yep. Certainly. One source, author and blogger Mark Sisson, uh, he wrote Primal Blueprint. Is that the episode of Next Generation where the Klingons and the Romulans and the Federation all come together and they find out that there was that progenitor race that planted the seeds? There is something of us in each of you. And so... Something of you in each other. I'm not entertaining your Star Trek references, Jim. <laughs> so this guy, Mark Sisson, promises something truly amazing out of his version of the paleo diet. He calls it a set of guidelines that allows you to control how your genes express themselves in order to build the strongest, leanest, healthiest body possible, taking clues from evolutionary biology in brackets, that's the primal part. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Okay. Okay. Even the cat's giving you stink eye. (laughs) So I found an FAQ on one site that had a number of extremely alarmist answers to perfectly reasonable questions. Here are a couple. (laughs) Why do you avoid healthy whole grains? Contrary to popular belief, whole grains are not so healthy to human beings. We simply have not adapted to be able to digest grains. Grains contain toxic anti-nutrients, lectins, gluten, and phytates, and we as human beings are not wired to be able to properly digest these anti-nutrients. When anti-nutrients meet nutrients, there's a there's a nutrient-anti-nutrient <laughs> annihilation gets... event that <laughs> produces way too much energy, which is why you gain weight. <laughs> uh, next one. Aren't you worried about cholesterol? The idea that eating foods high in saturated fat and cholesterol will cause heart disease is a myth. Your body cannot function properly without adequate levels of cholesterol. This does not mean low cholesterol. Not to mention, your brain needs fat. Your brain is mostly fat and needs fat to really thrive. People at risk for heart disease often are on a low-fat, high-carb diet, and statins not only do not save lives, but come packaged with many harmful side effects. Just more reason to ditch the grains and up the fat. Oh, I love the big pharma fear thrown yeah, in there, yeah. too, Statins just for good measure. just don't help anything. Okay, yeah. last one I'm going to read. What's the deal with dairy? I don't know, Jerry Seinfeld. You tell me. <laughs> What's the deal with dairy? <laughs> so remember that almost every source says no go for dairy in the paleo diet. Even I saw a comment, somebody, well, what about ghee? What about clarified butter? Is that okay? No, no dairy. Bad. Okay, what's the deal with dairy? Often, people see recipes of ours that include dairy, and their comments are, I thought dairy wasn't paleo. All dairy is not created equal. 
Pasteurized dairy is a processed dead food, and raw dairy is a whole live food. Yeah, with all that like listeria swimming around in there. Sprouted <laughs> dairy. <laughs> When animals are fed a diet of grains and soy, they are inflamed, fat, toxic, and sick. Animals thrive on a diet of grasses. They are meant to roam freely and graze. Milk from grain-fed animals is also toxic, so it then must be heated to kill bad bacteria. Unfortunately, when you kill the bad bacteria, you also kill the good bacteria that helps assist in digestion. This is why people often have problems digesting pasteurized dairy. Okay. No! No, that's not... Okay. Um, raw dairy from a healthy animal raised on pasture is a living food. Raw dairy is a great source of vitamins A, D, and K, and can be incorporated into a paleo diet in moderation. So, if living foods are important, does that mean that you have to take a bite out of a living cow? I have had no comment on this. <laughs> okay. I, I think he means living in the pseudoscientific sense, not uh, living in the actual in the sense. For real sense. Right, living when it <laughs> serves your point, but not in reality. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Now that we've explored some of their claims, let's go on to some facts. First of all, a quote from a Scientific American article on the paleo diet. Which hunter-gatherer tribe are we supposed to mimic exactly? Yeah. How do we reconcile the Inuit diet, mostly the flesh of sea mammals, with the more varied plant and land animal diet of the Hadza or the Kung? Chucking the many different hunter-gatherer diets into a blender to come up with some kind of quintessential smoothie is a little ridiculous. <laughs> when you read that to me earlier, mm, I had, it was a seal blubber smoothie. <laughs> oh, um, so we know that in the Paleolithic, the human diet varied immensely by geography, season, and opportunity. Quote, We know now that humans have evolved not to subsist on a single Paleolithic diet, but to be flexible eaters, an insight that has important implications for the current debate over what people today should eat in order to be healthy. Quote from anthropologist William Leonard of Northwestern University in Scientific American in 2002. Uh, he continues... Too often, modern health problems are portrayed as the result of eating bad foods that are departures from the natural human diet. This is a fundamentally flawed approach to assessing human nutritional needs, Leonard wrote. Our species was not designed to subsist on a single optimal diet. What is remarkable about human beings is the extraordinary variety of what we eat. We have been able to thrive in almost every ecosystem on Earth, consuming diets ranging from almost all animal foods among populations in the Arctic to primarily tubers and cereal grains among populations in the high Andes. So humans are varied, and we developed to eat as many things as we could find. We are an opportunistic virus. Exactly. <laughs> uh, one of the main arguments for the paleo diet is that it is what we were eating when our brains started to enlarge and made us into the humans we are today. Uh, from an article in The Guardian, The University of Chicago's Quarterly Review of Biology issued a report that calls into question one of the cornerstone beliefs of paleo carnivores, that it was a switch to meat in the hominid diet brought about by the advent of hunting equipment during the Stone Age that led to the increased brain size that distinguishes humans from our heavier-browed forefathers. But according to evolutionary biologist Karen Hardy and her colleagues, carbohydrates played an essential role in the developing of bigger brains. Mm -hmm. A high-functioning human brain needs lots of glucose, which carbs provide. The studies suggest that starchy carbs were essential to the evolution and growth of the human brain, despite the common paleo approach to a high-protein, low-carb diet. Uh, previous studies had connected the human brain development with the discovery of stone tools, uh, which caused humans to shift from a mostly plant-based diet to a meat-based one. But after taking into account genetic, physiological, archaeological, anthropological, and anatomical data, researchers believe we also have digestible carbohydrates to think. Uh, so once again, here's that guy who hates potatoes, Lauren Cordain. <laughs> 
I have noticed in the last few years that many paleo dieters believe that potatoes can be regularly consumed without any adverse health effects, he says. Part of this misinformation seems to stem from writers of blogs and others who are unfamiliar with the scientific literature regarding potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) Please subscribe to my potato journal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and also, people who eat paleo tend to be super fine with sweet potatoes and yams. It's just like the North American potato that they think is evil. Well, because white foods are the devil. Yes, okay. Mm -hmm. The white devil. (laughs) But according to Hardy's findings, eating starchy tubers like potatoes is exactly what allowed our hunting-gathering ancestors to thrive. Because they had energy that lasted longer than, like, an hour. Mm -hmm. And they could be stored for a fair amount of time without refrigeration or drying or anything like that. And they were pretty reliably grown in a lot of climates. Mm -hmm. And they don't need a lot of tending. You just kind of leave some in the ground and they multiply. (laughs) Yeah. Children can grow potatoes in a water glass in, like, grade two. (laughs) A lot of subscribers to the paleo diet say things like, our ancestors didn't get heart disease or suffer from other diseases of affluence. There are several issues with this line of thinking. Let's cover a couple of them. Our ancestors ate this way and didn't have many of the chronic diseases we do, but that doesn't mean the food they ate is the reason why. Drawing that conclusion would be like saying we live three times longer than our paleolithic ancestors because we eat fast food. Says Christopher Ochner, MD. (laughs) Every fad diet thinks it has discovered the root of all evil, says Dr. Ochner. But nutrients in legumes, whole grains, and dairy, all of which are forbidden on the paleo diet, can help to lower the risk of osteoporosis and cardiovascular disease. A recent study in The Lancet looked for signs of arthrosclerosis, arteries clogged with cholesterol and fats, in more than 100 ancient mummies from societies of farmers, foragers, and hunter-gatherers around the world. Uh, They included Egypt, Peru, the southwestern U.S., and the Aleutian Islands. Uh, A common assumption is that arthrosclerosis is predominantly lifestyle-related, and that if modern human beings could emulate pre-industrial or even pre-agricultural lifestyles, that atherosclerosis, or at least its clinical manifestations, could be avoided. The researchers wrote, uh, but they found evidence of probable or definite atherosclerosis in 47 out of 137 mummies from all of the diverse geographical regions. People got clogged arteries all the time, and it was... uh, Extremely correlated with age, basically, the older mummies tended to have it, and the younger mummies tended to not have it, regardless of which climate and diet they had. And keep in mind, these are people, too, who were by necessity very physically active, Mm -hmm. and by necessity did not eat processed foods, and all of those things that we blame today. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Yeah, so saying that, well, they didn't get heart disease, so we should eat like them, so we don't get heart disease, it's garbage. Some paleo practitioners say that we just haven't evolved past where we were 10,000 years ago, and that evolution hasn't had time to catch up to our current diet and lifestyle. Uh, On his website, Sisson writes, While the world has changed in innumerable ways in the last 10,000 years, for better and worse, the human genome has changed very little, and thus only thrives under similar conditions. This is just not true. (laughs) In fact, the reasoning misconstrues how evolution works. If humans and other organisms could only thrive in circumstances similar to the ones their predecessors lived in, life would not have lasted very long. Several examples of recent and relatively speedy human evolution underscore that our anatomy and genetics haven't been set in stone since the Stone Age. Within a span of 7,000 years, for instance, people have adapted to eating dairy by developing lactose tolerance. Usually the gene encoding an enzyme lactase, which break down lactose sugars in milk, shuts down after infancy. When dairy became prevalent, many people evolved a mutation that kept the gene turned on throughout life. So we've evolved to eat dairy, the exact thing that they are saying we did not do. Right. Not everybody did. It's important to know. It's 
that happened in populations that started using dairy, dairy yeah. frequently. So there are populations where dairy was never really a big part of their diet. So those are the people who tend to have lactose intolerance as adults. But in uh, populations where dairy has always been part of it, you see a much higher rate of people being able to digest lactose yep. well into their older age. So we have evolved in the past seven to 10,000 years, but the organisms uh, that share our bodies have evolved even faster, mm -hmm. uh, particularly the billions of bacteria living in our intestines. Our gut bacteria interact with our food in lots and lots of ways. They help us break down all kinds of things, um, but they also compete with us for calories. We have no way of knowing what bacterial species thrived in paleolithic intestines, but we can be pretty sure that our microbial communities are very different. The ways in which they have evolved to process the food that we eat, we have very little way of knowing that far back. As Christina Warner of the University of Zurich emphasizes in her 2012 TED Talk, just about every single species commonly consumed today, whether a fruit, vegetable, or animal, is drastically different from its Paleolithic predecessors. In most cases, we have transformed the species we eat through artificial selection. We've bred cows, chickens, and goats to provide as much meat, milk, and eggs as possible, and we've sown seeds only from plants with the most desirable traits. The biggest fruit, uh, the sweetest flesh, the fewest natural toxins. Uh, one of my favorites is that cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, and Brussels sprouts, and kale are all different cultivars of a single species. Don't forget kohlrabi and mustard greens sure. in there. <laughs> They're all the same. <laughs> They're all delicious in their own way. <laughs> Most of them are delicious. <laughs> generation by generation, we reshaped this one plant's leaves, stems, and flowers into completely different arrangements, the same way we bred Welsh corgis, pugs, dachshunds, St. Bernards, and greyhounds out of a single wolf species. <laughs> uh, uh, corn was once a straggly grass known as teosinte, and tomatoes were once much smaller berries. Uh, the wild ancestors of bananas had tons and tons of seeds in them and were not very nice to eat. Behold the atheist's nightmare. Uh, Zuck wrote a book called Paleofantasy, uh, and a quote from her. Paleofantasies call to mind a time when everything about us, body, mind, and behavior, was in sync with the environment, but no such time existed. We and every other living thing have always lurched along in evolutionary time with the inevitable trade-offs that are a hallmark of life. Uh, so just quickly, a few other small issues with the paleo diet. Experts estimate that our ancestors consumed a one-to-one -one ratio of calories from meats to produce. Uh, since you have to eat a lot of salad to consume the same amount of calories in a steak, the paleo diet should ideally include mostly fruits and vegetables, uh, but people don't realize that and they eat way too much meat. And consuming excess protein and not enough carbs can, uh, once again, they can cause kidney damage and increase your risk of osteoporosis. Uh, following the paleo diet can be pricey. Inexpensive and healthy non-meat protein sources like soy and beans are off-limit. Um, and healthy meat like lean ground beef and boneless, skinless chicken breasts cost way more than high-fat ground beef or chicken legs. Right, so the poor, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Even switching from peanut butter, which is a legume and not allowed, to paleo-approved almond butter <laughs> will get you a significant increase in your grocery bill, uh, especially since it has to be organic, natural, and sugar-free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's also not exactly vegan-friendly, since uh, the diet emphasizes meat and fish. Uh, Cordain, once again, founder of the paleo movement and ardent potato hater, says that it's impossible <laughs> to follow a paleo diet without eating meat, seafood, or eggs, since, as we've mentioned, uh, excellent vegetarian sources of protein are not allowed. And finally, a passage from science-based medicine, writing on the topic of the paleo diet. Ever since the rise of science and industry, there has long been a significant proportion of the population who distrust, fear, and sometimes even loathe modernity. Science changes too fast. It is thought to endanger spiritual matters. It tramples on traditional values. 
People fantasize about and long for a non-existent time long past, when humans supposedly lived in harmony with their environment, and they view science, specifically for the purposes of this discussion, modern biomedicine, as having participated in destroying that ancient wisdom. Alternative medicine and the paleo diet share this fear of modernity as an underlying assumption, even as their advocates use and misuse evolution to prove their worth. This is nothing new, and the rationale behind the paleo diet is nothing more than, as Zook has put it, the evolutionary search for our perfect past. Unfortunately, fantasy is not reality, and we humans have long been known to abuse and despoil our environment, even back in those paleo days. Indeed, when I took a prehistoric archaeology course, which was largely dedicated to the period of time of the hunter-gatherers, one thing I remember my professor pointing out was that what he did was largely the study of prehistoric garbage, and that humans have always produced a lot of it. (laughs) So that's the paleo diet. There are a lot of things wrong with it. Um, You can have a perfectly healthy life eating mostly fruits and veggies and meat, but there is no real evidence behind it. Pretty much. So eat a potato. Good. <laughs> really good. Deep fry it once in a while. Just oh, God. Me. I made some latkes the other day. Oh, oh. so good. <laughs> Jen puts, like, all the oil in them, too. <laughs> Thank you, Ashlyn. That was a really good look at the topic there. I think that answered a lot of questions for people. I really appreciate that I didn't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Since Jem has already mentioned that... His research has contradicted some of the claims made by Ashlyn's research. Let's pass it over to Jem and talk about the China study. Yeah, these two segments are going to (laughs) fight. Okay, so let's talk about the China study. What is it? It's a book uh, by T. Colin Campbell, Professor Emeritus of Nutritional Biochemistry at Cornell, and his son Thomas, who is a physician. It was published in 2005 or 2004, depending on which publication date, you believe, Um, but it quickly became one of the best-selling nutrition books in the United States. Its full title is The China Study, Startling Implications for Diet, Weight Loss, and Long-Term Health, or as I prefer to call it, These Doctors Studied Nutrition in China. You won't believe what they found. (laughs) Uh, Clickbait headlines did not start with BuzzFeed. So the China study is based on the findings of the China Cornell Oxford Project, which was a 20-year epidemiological study of diet and health in China conducted by the Chinese Academy of Preventative Medicine, Cornell University, and the University of Oxford. Professor Campbell was one of the directors of the study, along with Chen Junxi, Deputy Director of the Institute of Nutrition and Food Hygiene at the Chinese Academy of Preventative Medicine, Richard Peto of the University of Oxford, and Li Junyao of the China Cancer Institute. So, what exactly is the fad diet that the China study promotes? You may know it as veganism. Yay! <laughs> The China study argues that people who eat a whole food vegan diet, that is to say people who avoid all animal products, including meat, fish, which is a kind of meat, I'm continuously baffled by the fact that fish is treated as a separate category, not subsumed under meat. I don't know if Catholics are to blame for that, but I'm getting I'm getting off topic here. Um, people who eat a plant-based diet, avoiding all meat, including fish, eggs, and dairy, and reducing their intake of processed foods and refined carbohydrates, will successfully avoid or even reverse the development of numerous so-called Western diseases, including cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. Because balanced nutrition can be challenging under a strict vegan diet, the book also recommends adequate supplementation, including B12 supplementation and sunshine exposure or dietary supplements to ensure adequate vitamin D. 
I have seen plenty of vegans proudly trumpeting the China study as conclusive evidence of the benefits of a plant-based diet. It isn't. I've also watched omnivores tearing the book apart with what seems to be particular glee. Uh, I'm going to cover some of those criticisms in a few minutes, but as somebody who's had to endure a lecture or two about my own dietary choices, it's hard for me not to see the response from omnivores as a little defensive. It's really easy to get tribal about this stuff, and no one is immune from motivated reasoning. Certainly not me, so I'll declare my biases up front. I'm a lacto-vegetarian. I'm vegan-adjacent. But my dietary choices have less to do with my well-being than the well-being of the other animals involved in the process. Uh, I discussed this way back on episode 82 when we talked about what we've changed our minds about, so I won't rehash it here. But my base assumption is that the average North American omnivorous diet is probably rather unhealthy, and I don't think that that's a super contentious point of view. But I'm skeptical that the average vegetarian diet in North America is really much healthier. Fries are vegan. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We do own a copy of the China study, uh, two copies actually, but that's not a reflection of how much we love it. It's a reflection of the fact that one of our steak-chomping family members loves it so much that he bought it for Laura twice. (laughs) No joke. Uh, yeah. Well. Uh, so while I find myself adopting many, though not all, of the recommendations put forward in the China study, I'm not convinced that vegetarianism is inherently healthier than omnivory? Is that how you would say it? <laughs> than an omnivorous diet. But uh, I've done enough meaningless waffling. Let's get to the meat of the matter. Uh, let's look at the evidence, shall we? I want to talk about the methodology of the China-Cornell-Oxford project first. It was an observational study, rather than an experimental study. Anyone want to uh, tell me the difference? They didn't actually change anything, they just watched what happened? Yeah, so uh, an experimental study uh, will manipulate an independent variable and then observe the outcome of those manipulations on a dependent variable. Uh, The standard experimental design these days is a randomized controlled trial in which the participants are randomly assigned to either an experimental group, i.e. one that receives the intervention under study, or a control group, one that doesn't. An observational study, by contrast, infers the outcome of an intervention from a population sample where the independent variable is not controlled by researchers. So inferences in an observational study are more limited for a variety of reasons. Uh, individuals are not randomly assigned to experimental and control groups, for example. They sort themselves, and so it it can be more challenging to control for confounding factors. That was way more words than I used. It certainly was. This is a gem segment. (laughs) (laughs) So why do an observational study rather than an experimental study? Let's take smoking as an example. It might violate ethical standards to randomly assign people to smoke or to not smoke. As it to, might. <laughs> yeah, we know that smoking is harmful. Uh, we might lack the ability to conduct an experimental study. Say, for example, we wanted to study the effects of smoking bans. A single experimenter might not have the political clout to convince a city to institute a smoking ban for the duration of the experiment. So they may have to select cities that have already done so on their own and then compare to those who haven't. It also may be impractical. So uh, if you're studying a condition that is very rare, let's say that your hypothesis indicates that it occurs in one in every million smokers, it's going to be very difficult and costly to recruit several million people for your study. So instead, you work backwards, starting with people who have the condition. 
Okay, so the China Cornell Oxford project was observational rather than experimental. They weren't assigning dietary or lifestyle interventions to some people and uh, control conditions to others and then observing the results. So uh, we have limitations on the controls. What they did is they looked closely at the diet and lifestyle of 6,500 people in 65 rural counties in China from 1983 to 84 and correlated that with mortality rates from cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and other chronic diseases reported in the same counties from 1973 to 75. The chosen counties were selected because their populations were genetically similar, and their diet and lifestyle factors had remained relatively constant over several generations. So for each of these 65 counties, they selected 100 families, and for each of those families, they selected uh, one adult family member, uh, uh, 50% male, 50% female. So in each of these 65 counties, you have 100 participants, 50 male, 50 female. They interview them about their lifestyle and dietary choices. They do some blood draws. Uh, then for each of these counties, they have an aggregate uh, assessment of what the sort of general diet and lifestyle choices in these communities are. And then they go back to the previous decade, and they look at mortality rates from certain diseases, and then they have some interesting data that they can pull correlations from. So what did they conclude? Well, the book makes a lot of claims, so in the interest of respecting our listeners' time and that of my co-hosts, I'm only going to cover the broad strokes here. The study found that counties with a high consumption of animal-based foods in 83 and 84 were more likely to have had higher death rates from so-called Western diseases, such as cancer, coronary heart disease, complications of diabetes, etc., between 1973 and 75. And the inverse was true for counties that consumed more plant-based foods. This is presented as evidence that a vegan plant-based diet will have a protective effect against cancer, heart disease, autoimmune diseases, and a host of other Western ailments. One interesting thing that I noted in my research is that at one point, the China study suggests that any food containing more than zero milligrams of cholesterol is inherently unhealthy, uh, which is generally considered an outdated nutritional hypothesis. However, in an earlier chapter of the book, they actually lay out the complex relationship between dietary cholesterol and blood cholesterol very well. Discussions of LDL and HDL cholesterol levels and all that complicated jazz. Instead of railing against dietary cholesterol, uh, the book generally advocates for a reduction in animal fats and animal protein. So that's... <sighs> That seems kind of like a contradiction in the book. I mean, we have, a, we have a book with two authors, one of whom is a nutritional biochemist and one of whom is a physician. That struck me as interesting. The diet discussed in the China study is actually very low in protein compared to a typical Western diet. We're not talking about a Western vegan diet with a lot of uh, plant-based proteins in it. You know, lots of soy products, textured vegetable protein, that sort of thing. Lots of legumes and like that. Instead, the, the diet is... Uh, very low in protein, uh, about 10% of the protein intake of the standard Western diet. So the authors maintain that a low-protein diet isn't actually inherently harmful and may be beneficial. Uh, the authors indicate that milk protein in particular contributes to the development of cancer. The book also alleges collusion between agribusiness and government to promote public consumption of unhealthy foods. If you're skeptical, I don't blame you. 
Accusations such as these are commonly heard from the likes of Joe Mercola and the Health Ranger over at naturalnews.com, and I die before I promote <laughs> those sites. But remember that proper skepticism is more than just knee-jerk denial. And these claims are based, at least in part, in fact. This is what lobbying is all about, after all, and big businesses have a lot of money at stake. The oil industry lobbies the government and tries to sway public perception about their effects on the environment and on your health. The tobacco industry does it too, so does the pharmaceutical industry. The agricultural industry isn't somehow immune. In a 2010 investigation published in the New York Times, Michael Moss reported on the efforts of Dairy Management, a subsidiary of the USDA, to increase the cheese content in American food. And I quote, Urged on by government warnings about saturated fat, Americans have been moving toward low-fat milk for decades, leaving a surplus of whole milk and milk fat. Yet the government, through dairy management, is engaged in an effort to find ways to get dairy back into Americans' diets, primarily through cheese. Americans now eat an average of 33 pounds of cheese a year, nearly triple the 1970 rate. Cheese has become the largest source of saturated fat. An ounce of many cheeses contains as much saturated fat as a glass of whole milk. That seems really far-fetched to me. Like, they take the fat out of whole milk and then they make things like whipping cream and table cream, right? I feel like there's got to be a lot more skim milk that gets thrown out than there is, like, surplus fat. Like, I haven't looked this up at all. The numbers don't seem to match up to me. I could pull more more information out of this New York Times article, but dairy management was working with, and, you know, this was publicized in press releases and like that. They, they worked with Domino's Pizza to increase the cheese uh, content of their pizza by 33%. But how did they get people to order it in the first place? Oh, I know. It was like cardboard with uh, with alphagetti on top of it. That's what <laughs> Anyway, sorry, that just, those numbers seem very strange to me. Maybe it's just one of those surprising facts, I don't know. Uh, what about it seems strange? Sorry, the, like... Once you take all of the fat out of the milk, they said that low-fat milk was driving, like, a surplus yeah. of milk fat. Yeah. I feel like there wouldn't be a surplus of milk fat after you make, like, whipped cream. But, well, but that's what they're saying. Whip. There isn't enough of a market to just put more whipping cream on, on the shelves because people are going, well, if, if I'm not, if I'm drinking skim milk, I'm definitely not drinking this. So it's sitting in yeah. processing plants, but basically. But I guess I, I would always have assumed that there was a lot of skim milk being thrown out or fed to pigs or whatever. No, because it, well, I mean, it gets used in all sorts of, yeah. in all sorts of things. It, and it can and, get turned into powder, like powdered milk yeah. and that. And so what you see is like, you know, when I grew up, we were always drinking whole milk, three, three and a quarter percent. Is that what whole milk yeah. is? Um, and it's it's rare to see something higher than one or two percent uh, in most households these days, I think. Yeah. And so with that move, you would have to have uh, and keep in mind the volumes that we're looking at, too. Like like people go through a lot of milk. They don't go through a lot of whipped cream, <laughs> same amount of milk, yeah. you know. Mm. Well, okay, I guess it depends Most on the people. I made a lot of creme brulee in the last little while because I got a set for Christmas. So we've gone through a ridiculous amount of whipped cream. So we can just honestly say that skim milk gets used in a lot of ways. Back to your thing. Sorry for the yeah. interruption. No, that's fine. And I'll, I'll link to that uh, to that New York Times article in the, in the show notes if people want to dig further into dairy management. So uh, let's talk about uh, some of the criticisms of the China study. Uh, while it was generally well-received, it has faced uh, critiques from several corners. 
The Weston A. Price Foundation isn't too fond of it, uh, but that's what one would expect from a charitable organization dedicated to the principle that, quote, humans achieve perfect physical form and perfect health generation after generation only when they consume nutrient-dense whole foods and the vital fat-soluble activators found exclusively in animal fats. Laura reminded me today that these are the same people who think we should be blending up liver and giving it to babies. No! <laughs> yeah. yeah, they have a recipe for liver-based infant formula that you can oh, use no. instead of, like, deadly, deadly powdered stuff that is not deadly. <laughs> yeah, uh, don't, don't do that. That's incredibly dangerous. Don't eat organ meats. Just don't. Well, it, it, it depends. If like, you're gonna eat an animal, might as well eat the organ meats. At yeah. least you're using all of it. But be careful, you know. Like yeah. if you're gonna do it, just don't, be careful. Don't feed it to babies. Yeah. <laughs> okay, filters. Don't you, eat filters. You don't want. Well, you know, if you're gonna eat your liver, you don't want hypervitaminosis A. You know, yeah. be careful. Have a nice Chianti. <laughs> Fava beans are pretty good. Uh, likewise, advocates for fad diets are critical, especially those who promote Atkins or Paleo, for obvious reasons. Uh, this diet is basically the exact opposite of those diets. <laughs> and they like to fight. Um, but some serious academics have also taken aim at the China study. With regard to the claim that the milk protein casein is uh, particularly carcinogenic, there is some animal evidence, but it appears to be limited, and I wasn't able to find anything that made me particularly confident one way or another, so I'm just going to kind of let that claim lie. That's something to be hashed out in the academic literature. But uh, I will quote from the Italian Association for Cancer Research, who has a page uh, dedicated to the China study. Uh, and this is translated from the Italian, uh, so uh, bear that in mind. Quote, The study considered 367 different types of data and analyzed over 8,000 correlations between them and the health of the population. The number of correlations studied was, however, considered excessive by statistical experts, as it allows to demonstrate any preconceived theory. So what they're saying is that the China study is a statistical fishing expedition. Uh, if you don't properly control for multiple comparisons, uh, which is what the Italian Association for Cancer Research alleges, it's really easy to come up with spurious correlations. They go on to note, quote, the China study mixes accurate indications and data, such as those on the relationship between red meat consumption and the development of some cancers, with other, more imaginative conclusions. For this reason, it is insidious as well as unreliable. When you have a source that liberally mixes well-supported fact with less well-supported fact or fiction, uh, it is difficult to know what is reliable. That is one of the reasons that uh, I will avoid endorsing Natural News or Joe Mercola under any circumstances ever. <laughs> Campbell claims that animal protein is correlated with cardiovascular disease, uh, but uh, he elides the fact that the same data also shows a correlation between plant protein and cardiovascular disease, for example. That said, as I mentioned earlier, the diet they're advocating for is actually very low protein anyway compared to a standard Western diet, so that criticism is kind of a wash uh, because in that case you're going to be lowering your risk of cardiovascular disease anyway. Uh, the China study does make some sweeping dietary recommendations, so probably the most common criticism is that the authors extrapolate far beyond the modest conclusions suggested by the data of the study, but they are at least occasionally upfront about the limits of their conclusions. So I'll quote here from the China study itself. Do I think the China study findings constitute absolute scientific proof? Of course not. 
Does it provide enough information to inform some practical decision-making? Absolutely. An impressive and informative web of information was emerging from this study. But does every potential strand or association in this mammoth study fit perfectly into this web of information? No. Although most statistically significant strands readily fit into the web, there were a few surprises. Most, but not all, have since been explained. While the book is called The China Study, only a small portion of the book is devoted to the China Cornell Oxford project itself, and these data are discussed in the context of other models of disease already published in the academic literature. The primary author, Dr. T. Colin Campbell, elaborates on this point in a response to a critique of the book by Denise Minger. So I'll quote Dr. Campbell here. The correlations published in our monograph cannot be blindly used to infer causality, at least for specific cause-effect associations having no biological plausibility. Nonetheless, they do offer a rich trove of opportunities to generate interesting hypotheses, relatively few of which have been explored to date. In contrast, using models representing biological plausibility, which was determined from prior research, I simply wanted to see if they were consistent with the China survey data. We began with a collection of previously developed cause-effect models, previously published, that we could test for consistency with the China data. We found, on balance, considerable support in the China database for these models. As I've said many times, not all the evidence in the China database supported this conclusion, although the large majority did. To find this degree of consistency in a population mostly using a low-fat, high-fiber, whole plant-based food diet with little or no processed foods, where I had thought we would see little or nothing, was impressive. One cannot, as Denise has done, rely on univariate correlations to make conclusions, especially when they are focused on specific foods for specific diseases. It is too easy to find what one wants to find. So, uh, there is a protracted blog back and forth between Dr. Campbell and Denise Minger, who is associated with Weston Foundation, <laughs> previously mentioned, uh, that I won't... I got pretty deep into the weeds in that, and I won't bore anyone here, uh, but I will link to uh, some of that in the uh, show notes here. Uh, so the bottom line here, for me at least, is that this stuff is complicated, uh, which is not much of a realization to those who uh, study nutrition or work in healthcare. I wish I could just say, the way I see a lot of skeptics saying, that the China study is bunk. But it's not all bunk. It's not simple. Uh, its claims are oversold and dubious in some cases, but there's some important nuance that's missed in a simple knee-jerk dismissal of the whole book. This book was written by a scientist and a physician. But it's still a book. It wasn't published by Nature, it was published by Ben Bella. In a book, anyone can say anything, especially if they have a couple of extra letters after their name. <laughs> Publishers typically don't bother with more than basic fact-checking, if that. Scientists are given a lot of leeway to discuss their findings, and there's certainly nothing approaching peer review. Remember the 2013 incident in which Jane Goodall's new book was delayed when an early reviewer for the Washington Post found that sections had been plagiarized from several websites, oh, yeah. including Wikipedia and a site promoting astrology? Yeah. And just think of how many books are published by Dr. Oz. <laughs> but that criticism itself is a little unfair. Because T. Colin Campbell has been publishing these data in the scientific literature as well. Here are a few of the hundreds of examples uh, aggregated on ResearchGate. Diet, Lifestyle, and the Etiology of Coronary Artery Disease, the Cornell China Study, published December 1998 in the American Journal of Cardiology. 
Inhibition of hepatocellular carcinoma development in hepatitis B virus transfected mice by low dietary casein. Published November 1997 in the Journal of Hepatology. Energy Balance, Interpretation of Data from Rural China, published January 2000 in Toxicology Sciences. This is a book that's direct to market. It's advocating a diet based on some science, and uh, perhaps it's oversold. So like, like any book advocating for really any position, <laughs> but especially when you're talking about diet and health, it should be interpreted with caution. The China study is flawed, and its claims should be regarded with healthy skepticism, just like any claims. Remember that the fact that it's flawed doesn't mean that everything it has to say is automatically wrong. It's the genetic fallacy. Just because it's coming from a dubious source doesn't mean it's automatically wrong. As I was reading through this, and thinking back to some of the other books that I've really liked, uh, for example, Richard Wiseman's Quirkology, there are a lot of studies that Richard Wiseman has done, and he's a delightful human being. There are a lot of studies that he's done that have very small sample sizes in the field of psychology, which is rife with, shall we say, uh, replicability issues. And I'm sure that there are lots of those studies that probably don't pan out, but it's still a book that I quite like. <laughs> so, the last thing that I wanted to do is, outside of the scope of the China study, take a look at how some of its central claims stack up to more recent research in the field. There are plenty of accurate observations in the book. As already mentioned, the correlation between the consumption of red and processed meats and cancer. I'll quote here from the 2015 monograph on red and processed meat published by the WHO's International Agency for Research on Cancer. Processed meat, and here we're talking things like hot dogs, hamburgers, and lunch meats, bacon. Processed meat was classified as carcinogenic to humans, group one, based on sufficient evidence in humans that the consumption of processed meat causes colorectal cancer. That is as sure as the WHO's IARC gets. Processed meat is carcinogenic to humans. In addition, quote, IARC monographs program classified the consumption of red meat as probably carcinogenic to humans, group 2A, based on limited evidence that the consumption of red meat causes cancer in humans and strong mechanistic evidence supporting a carcinogenic effect. The association was observed mainly for colorectal cancer, but associations were also seen for pancreatic and prostate cancer. A vegan diet may not be necessarily healthier than an omnivorous one. But that doesn't mean that any given vegan diet is necessarily unhealthy on its own. There are also plenty of non-nutritional reasons that people choose to avoid animal products. It's challenging, and it typically requires careful monitoring and supplementation to ensure you're not missing out on important nutrients. So I'm going to link in the show notes to some dietary tips for vegans to make sure they're getting adequate nutrition if, if you want to play along at home. In 2013, uh, JAMA Internal Medicine published a large study examining the relationship between vegetarianism and mortality. There were more than 73,000 study participants. While a big N isn't everything, that is more than an order of magnitude greater than the size of the China Cornell-Oxford project. The subjects were Seventh-day Adventists in this case, uh, who were chosen because they tend not to smoke or consume alcohol, making it easier for the study to control for lifestyle choices that may affect their health. But they had a wide range of dietary patterns, with 48% being typical omnivores, 29% lacto-ovo-vegetarians, 10% were pesca-vegetarians, uh, that is, they refrain from eating poultry and red meat but still eat fish, and 5% were semi-vegetarian, eating meat less than once a week. 
quoting from the National Institutes of Health, quote, The researchers found that vegetarians, that is those with vegan, lacto-ovo, pesco, and semi-vegetarian diets, were 12% less likely to die from all causes combined compared to non-vegetarians. The death rates for subgroups of vegans, lacto-ovo-vegetarians, and pesco-vegetarians were all significantly lower than those of non-vegetarians. Those on a vegetarian diet tended to have a lower rate of death due to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and renal disorders such as kidney failure. No association was detected in this study between diet and deaths due to cancer. The researchers also found that the beneficial associations between a vegetarian diet and mortality tended to be stronger in men than women. While these findings may buoy confidence in some of the China study's conclusions, it's interesting to note that while cancer was a major theme in the China study, along with cardiovascular disease, no association was found in this study between diet and cancer deaths. However, an Italian meta-analysis published just last year found that vegan diets may in fact be protective of cancer, reporting, quote, a significant protective effect of a vegetarian diet versus the incidence and or mortality from ischemic heart disease and incidence from total cancer. Vegan diet conferred a significant reduced risk of incidence from total cancer. Note that this protective effect, if it exists, however, was limited to incidence of cancer, but not cancer mortality. Mm. See? This is really complicated. <laughs> I would just like to point out that we all do die. Yes. Talking about vegan mortality yeah. rates, we die. Yeah, vegan mortality rates are 100%, just like Wait. everyone else. So it, it doesn't help that the reporting is so muddled. Uh, the reporting on nutrition is very complicated. Uh, so, uh, for example, does anyone remember those headlines from last year? Being a vegetarian could kill you, science warns, uh, wrote the <laughs> New York Post. Uh, the Telegraph's warning was uh, a little more specific. Long-term vegetarian diet changes human DNA, raising risk of cancer and heart disease. I'm just going to quote briefly from a discussion of this study itself over at Motherboard. So what did the study actually find? Yi and his colleagues identified an allele, a gene variant, in some people whose ancestors maintained a primarily vegetarian diet. This allele allows these individuals to produce synthetic versions of omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acid, which are essential for brain function but can be lacking from vegetarian diets. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. It is really cool. Uh, and actually totally contradicts these paleo claims, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> While a certain level of these fatty acids is necessary for your body to run, too much of it can cause inflammation, which can lead to heart disease and colon cancer. Because of this, individuals with the vegetarian allele would be better off sticking to a vegetarian diet so that they're not getting double the dose of fatty acid from their diet and their body's natural synthetic version. But that sort of complexity is hard to capture concisely, as this whole attempt at a segment I'm currently doing demonstrates. Uh, it certainly doesn't translate well into a snappy headline. So, this book is interesting. I was expecting it to be a lot worse than it turned out to be. Uh, it argues its case strongly, and while some of the studies cited aren't as robust as we might want, I can't say that we're talking about pseudoscience here. Despite the way the book is marketed, veganism isn't going to cure cancer or guarantee that you won't get heart disease. It isn't some magic bullet that will make you healthy all on its own. But to their credit, the authors aren't presenting veganism as some sort of fad diet quick fix. Because balanced nutrition can be challenging under a strict vegan diet, as I've mentioned, the book recommends supplementation to ensure adequate vitamin D and B12 intake. They're not pretending this is magic. 
There are lots of quibbles and criticisms, but we're talking about legitimate debates on the merits of certain dietary interventions. While it seems to me that this sort of thing is better hashed out in the scientific literature than, you know, the direct consumer book market or blog battles between uh, Dr. Campbell and the Weston A. Price Foundation. Dr. Campbell has been making his case in the scientific literature for some time and is happy to engage with the rest of the scientific community. And when we're talking about diet, that's a breath of fresh air. Well, Jem, that was really comprehensive. Thank you for reading the China study, or at least going through it so I didn't have to yet again. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I did not read the whole thing. <laughs> and I do really appreciate when people can see just how complicated nutrition is. I mean, I, I even find myself falling into quick denial of things that sound wrong or, or just wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater with a lot of these kinds of things. But it is really important to take the claims for what they are and, and look at the evidence for them. So we're going to skip over to something completely different now. This is an I won't say a new diet because there have been iterations of it before. But this is one that I saw about two weeks ago on the cover of a magazine at the checkout of the grocery store, and I couldn't let it pass. The headline. Best place to get nutrition advice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the headline read Low carb plus sweet potato equals lose a pound every 1.5 days. Mm. I couldn't not talk about this. Obviously, I was sold. So this is called The Sweet Potato Diet, and the book is was published in April. Um, I'm going to say from the get-go, too, I spent zero dollars on this book. I have not read this book. What <laughs> I've done... How did you spend on the magazine? I spent zero dollars on the magazine okay. as well. I read the headline, and I found the article online from, some, from oh, a reader the service. The internet is beautiful. The, the internet is great. So with that preface... I don't know exactly the ins and outs. I did go through the, the book's website and I read up on the, the book's author and I signed up for the free three-day meal plan and I even got one of their recipes that we're going to try tonight. I baked it. It looks nothing like the picture, you guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the sweet potato diet. We've heard of different diets that are based on different foods before. Basically, the author claims that sweet potato is kind of a, a power food is, is his term for it, but a magic food. He really found through his own experience and through the experience of working with others that he put on this diet that they've lost a ton of weight, including fast fat melting. When diets talk about fat melting, like, I'm like (laughs) off your body? That's horrifying. And I'm picturing the Nazis at the end of the last (laughs) Doesn't doesn't work that way. Turns into carbon dioxide. Fat sublimation. So a little bit about this author. The author is Michael Morelli. He is a personal trainer, a self-reported nutrition expert. I couldn't find any degrees or credentials. He's taken some courses in personal training and fitness and things like that. But in terms of nutrition, I'm guessing it's self-study. His website makes claims about healing multiple illnesses with food. Uh, A lot of allusions to food being some kind of a cure-all. The use of diet to treat things like shingles without antibiotics, despite the fact that shingles is a viral illness. He also makes a claim on the website that he and his team have beaten disease, including cancer, on multiple occasions. Okay. So, so there's a lot of red flags with this. But okay, let's let's give this a go. So the diet is based on sweet potatoes. If anybody isn't sure what sweet potatoes are, they're a tuberous vegetable that are pretty common around the world, uh, but particularly in South America and Asia, um, the Southern United States, they're very, very common as well. They come in a range of colors, all the way from white, yellow, red to purple. 
Sometimes they're called yams. What we in North America are eating are not yams. They're sweet potatoes, regardless of color. The white ones we got did not work in sushi. No, they do have different texture <laughs> and they do have different flavor, but they're the same vegetable. Yeah. Um, they're a starchy vegetable. They're a good source of fiber, very high in vitamin A, beta carotene, high in vitamin C, excellent source of potassium, and it, sometimes a decent source of iron, depending on which variety you get. So they're a starchy vegetable. We've talked about this. Uh, so paleo loves them. Yeah, I feel like um, these guys would get along with the paleo. Oh, guys. yeah, yeah. So they, they, they totally would. A little bit of nutrition, sweet potato per one cup, depending on cooking method, has about 45 to 60 grams of carbs, 190 to 270 calories, seven to nine grams of fiber, and 14 to 20 grams of sugars. Hence the name sweet potato, because they're literally sweet. They have a lot of sucrose in them. Compared to regular potatoes, based on variety and cooking method again, one cup is more like 30 to 35 grams of carbs, 130 to 150 calories, so about half as many calories, depending on cooking method, or two thirds as many three grams of fiber, so a little bit less, but only two grams of sugar. So there's your big difference between white potatoes and sweet potatoes. So what are the diet claims? Sweet potatoes should be your main source of carbohydrates. Basically, that is your starch source in this diet. The claim that sweet potatoes have inherent properties that cause fat loss, they don't cause uh, cravings or uh, going back to old eating methods, They particularly carb cravings they take care of, which makes sense because they're full of carbs. Um, this diet is basically a form of carbohydrate cycling, which I'll talk about uh, later, but basically it alternates higher carb days and lower carb days, which causes metabolic alterations. Sweet potatoes are high fiber. Uh, the book says that they are calorie blocking. I don't know how this works. That's not how fiber works. Uh, a fire door would be calorie blocking. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's, that's close to fiber. Yeah. Um, Sweet potatoes have antioxidants that elevate fat-burning hormones is the claim as well. And there's some question about some new research saying that there's some proteins in sweet potatoes that decrease appetite and encourage fat loss. I couldn't find, didn't take the time to find the study, but it sounds very preliminary. Also full of testimonials like lost 100 pounds in 150 days, lost 12 pounds in the first week. Uh, never able to lose weight with any other diet, but lost it on this one. So, you know, lots of really grandiose claims. It's also claims to be really ex accessible and non-restrictive. So we talked about the author already. So how does the diet work? Like I said, it's carb cycling. So you follow a pattern of low carbohydrate days, high carb days, and then there's some free days in there. And again, I don't know the exact pattern. So I don't even get to eat a sweet potato every day? Oh no, you eat sweet potatoes every day. Oh, okay. Oh yeah, this is your starch, okay? <laughs> On free days, you could occasionally use other starch sources, but it is recommended that you just keep eating the same recommended foods, but you can eat them how you want to eat them as opposed to certain amounts at every meal. Mm. Uh, the book provides a lot of recipes. Apparently there's 45 in there and all the recipes have sweet potato in them. The recipes range from salads to roasted sweet potato fries to waffles and brownies. And we mm. are gonna try the brownies tonight. The proteins that are encouraged are primarily uh, chicken breast, salmon, some seafood, grass-fed beef, and egg whites. So most of these options are very, very lean options and those typical like bodybuilder, uh, paleo kind of foods. Um, it's also imperative based on the book that you eat these before your starchy foods. So you eat all your protein first. No dairy or alternatives, lots of non-starchy vegetables, low fruit, about one a day. Uh, no added sugars, creams, toppings, dressings, any of those kinds of extra ranch foods. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> the ranch diet. <laughs> In sure Valley. <laughs> 
portion controlled meals with uh, very small snacks. There's no processed foods, like none of the ultra processed foods, no eating out, um, whole foods made from scratch at home. Plus you're supposed to drink half your body weight in pounds in ounces of water a day. That is a lot. So for example, I weigh about 125 pounds, so I'd need 62.5 ounces of water a day, which is actually only about two liters of water a day. But I'm a fairly small person. (laughs) For for larger people, that could be a lot of water a day. I will also note too, that if you're not drinking very much water and you go to drinking say four liters a day based on your size and that, you're gonna feel a lot more full because you're full of water all the time. And just one thing to note quickly for listeners who did not listen to what? Our common misconceptions episode. We've talked about this a couple times. You don't need to drink eight cups of water, two liters of water a day. Uh, That is a myth. Yeah. I can't drink 117 ounces of water a day, and I drink a lot of water. (laughs) Yeah, I would need 3.7 liters of water. Yeah, so that's a lot of people. So for myself, I mean, I know I drink a lot of water, and I get that no problem. But for a lot of people, that's a significant amount more. So you're going to be full of water, which is also going to have some effect with why this diet may or may not work. Am I allowed to drink my water in coffee form? No, but on one of his YouTube (laughs) videos, he does recommend that before you work out, you must drink an eight ounce cup of black coffee. What? Well, there is some evidence talking about the effect of caffeine on performance. And of course, this goes very closely with the whole CrossFit, high Mm -hmm. intensity, um, coffee naps, uh, workouts type of thing. Very popular CrossFit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the author is a fitness trainer and has his own brand of types of workouts and Mm. and training and that. So it goes along with that. Or does the caffeine like boost your metabolism at all? There's some of that and the stimulant nature of it, it does have some some helpful effects. I mean, like diet pills have been full of caffeine forever. They're great. When do we get to eat the brownie? I was going to say, I have a brownie in front of me. (laughs) Okay, well, why don't we test it out before we do the analysis? So everybody try your brownie. Well, it tastes like sweet potato. I don't think it tastes like brownie. Not unpleasant. No. There's an aftertaste. (laughs) (laughs) this this brownie recipe was super weird like it called for there's no wheat flour in this of course not it called for coconut flour which is the super weird like sweet flour right (laughs) it has half a cup of honey in it that's like honey and coconut flour are the sweeteners this is definitely based on the paleo yeah (laughs) oh yeah it is um uh, this brownie is vegan. I, I altered the recipe so that it didn't have eggs in it. I used a standard soy egg replacer. I actually really like it. Yeah, it's not bad. I, I, I'm actually kind of glad that it works out. There's a lot of these kinds of recipes floating around. It's very paleo. Volumetrically, there's twice as much sweet potato in this brownie as, as there is flour. That explains some things. Well, the texture is definitely like eating a sweet potato, but it yeah. tastes to me like a good brownie. It's a little gritty. I wouldn't turn this down. No. No, I have it's had... A brownie. I wouldn't kick this brownie out of bed. <laughs> so let's talk the analysis. So I got the three-day meal plan, and it included a high-carbohydrate day, a low-carb day, and then a free day. Free-day description is basically eat whatever you want, but we really suggest that you eat how you want to out of the foods that we recommend. The way that the three-day diet plan is broken down is it gives you three meals a day and two snacks, and it lays out uh, protein, carbs, fats, and veggies for each of your meals, how much you're supposed to do. And they use a handy portions guide of how much you should use at your meal. So like your your protein, your meat should be the palm of your hand. Uh, and so if you have a bigger hand, you eat more meat. If you have a smaller hand, you eat less meat. Your <laughs> Why? 
Big people need more food? Right, but hand size is not correlated directly to body size. Like, it, a lot of it has to do with what kind of work you do. Yeah, so there's there's problems with that. Now, I will say that I do sometimes use that kind of a measure with people just to give them an idea of things. Mm-hmm. And if it seems like their hand size really doesn't match up with what would be appropriate or healthful or nourishing for them, then we talk about non-hand objects like deck of cards, tennis yeah. ball, things like that. That's what anyway, I I'm just so, thinking of your Uncle Don. You'd put his hand on my cranium like a basketball and lift me up. <laughs> anyway, the handy portion size. So the palm of the hand for the protein and then fists basically for your veggies and your starches, which is sweet potato. High carb days have a lot of sweet potato in them. The protein is pretty much constant between the different days. The high carb days have a lot of sweet potato and a little less veggies and very little fat. So just a little bit of fat, like one thumb tip size portion per day. Um, but whereas you get like two fists of sweet potato at each meal. So that not that's not enough butter to put on your sweet potato. <laughs> and keep in mind that's supposed to be, as far as I can tell, that's supposed to be like your your dressing, your cooking, your yeah, things like that. Like I would have to, again, I would have to look at the recipes to see, but that is not a lot for each meal. That's not very much. The low carb days, again, protein is constant, but instead of having two fists of, of starch, you go down to like half a fist. So there's a big difference. Really what it works out to is that rough calculations, I got about 2,200 to 2,600 calories on the high carb days based on your choice of protein, whether it was fatty or not. And the low carb days were more like 1,760 to 2,060 calories. So there's about a 500 calorie difference between the days. So what this tells us is it's a calorie restricted diet Mm -hmm. because you have days where there's fewer calories. So weight tends to change when you have fewer calories. This is also a calorie controlled diet. Most people who are just eating out there in the world are not controlling their calories. They're not paying attention to exact portions of this, that, or the other. So as soon as you go onto pretty much any diet that tells you what to do and you stick even remotely close to that, you're going to see a change. And most people underestimate how much they eat as it is. So when they start sticking to portions, it often makes a difference. This diet also doesn't have added sugars, doesn't have added fats. There's no sugar-sweetened beverages. Keep in mind, a lot of people, yeah, this brownie obviously has added sugars, but in terms of your normal day, you're not putting syrup on things, you're not putting sugar in your black coffee, you're not adding sugars, you're not adding salad dressings to your salad, you're not adding all this stuff that often does get added in a day. So for a lot of people, that can reduce a lot of calories right there. Same with the sweetened beverages. If you are normally a juice drinker or a pop drinker or even like a fancy latte drinker and you cut all those things out, you're going to cut a lot of calories right there. There are things about this diet that, of course, you would see some changes because of the very nature. It could be the grape diet, and you follow all these same kinds of things, and you'd still see those changes. Grapefruit diet. Throw out the pizza and beer. Grapefruit diet. Forget those jelly donuts out of here. I fail to see any real sweet potato magic happening here. It's based on the carbohydrate cycling, which is something that is used in sports nutrition uh, by qualified professionals. Mm -hmm. However, it's generally used in elite athletes, mainly physique-based or weight category-based sports. It's not used long-term, whereas this diet is talking about a lifestyle, so it's encouraged to use forever. It's also, from what I understand, the evidence isn't necessarily there, but it's not necessarily a bad thing, and they do see the results, but it's done with a qualified professional, not some book on your shelf. 
And it's done with precise numbers. It's not done with like, I don't know, what does a sweet, how much is in this sweet potato? You know, how much sweet potato do you feel like eating today? Keeping this up as a lifestyle sounds impossible. So one other thing that this diet does Despite the fact that it's not restrictive, it cuts out a whole whack of foods. You mm-hmm. don't see any dairy. You don't see any grains. You don't see any legumes aside from the occasion. Like, there's a little bit of nuts here and there and a couple of recipes, but you don't see those other categories. Mm-hmm. You see very little fruit as well. So it is pretty restrictive because it cuts out a lot of really nutritious foods. And the low variability in the diet makes it less interesting. When our yeah. food's not interesting, we don't eat as much. This is known when we eat really interesting food and very palatable food as well. We eat more because many humans take pleasure out of eating food. We get happy sensations when we eat things that taste really good. And I would bet that you'd be pretty damn sick of sweet potato after this diet. So you probably wouldn't want to do it. So you'd probably not eat as much sweet potato as you were supposed to. So there you go. Even more caloric deficits right there. Eating all your protein first. Protein is filling It is satiating as well. It makes Mm -hmm. you feel satisfied. So if you load up on your giant piece of steak, you probably don't want your two cups of sweet potato or you don't want the whole two cups of sweet potato there, Mm -hmm. right? As well, because we live in a culture that is so afraid of carbohydrates, people are more likely to try not to eat those as it is and really focus on the protein. Doing my rough estimates, the macronutrient distribution ranges seem reasonable. They're not wildly outside of norms so that's okay but I would be really concerned that it eliminates a lot of nutritious foods and it would take a lot of planning to make sure that you get enough things like magnesium folate zinc calcium and vitamin d because those foods are not well represented in this diet so is it a lifestyle probably not unless you love sweet potato and have just been looking for the excuse that you need to eat it for the rest of your life uh is it restrictive absolutely it is there's nothing amazing about this diet that hasn't been published before with a different type of Mm -hmm. food or or fruit in the title. And just inherently that, going back to when I saw this, low carb plus sweet potato. Sweet potato is carbohydrate. It is not low carb if it's sweet potato. (sighs) (laughs) She's been waiting all segment to scream that. All right. More sweet potato brownie, anyone? (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to, too. We're going to go on to our last segment of the day, which is Lauren and the blood type diet. Hey, Laura, what's your blood type? B positive. Hey, that's both a blood type and an imperative. (laughs) Another question. Do you like lentils? I love lentils. Well, that's too bad. Oh, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Because according to your blood type, lentils are one of the foods you should avoid, along with corn, wheat, buckwheat, Tomatoes, peanuts, and sesame seeds. But I love all those things. Mm-hmm. Aww. Well, you should also avoid chicken, but that will be easy. What do you put buckwheat in? Pillows. Cabbage rolls, if you want to make cabbage rolls right and not the bad way with rice. Oh my god, okay. But the cabbage rolls are so good. <laughs> They're the best. I did not know that I had stepped upon this mine. <laughs> Let us continue. You're talking to Jem. What did you expect? <laughs> well, you said you loved all those things, and I've never heard anybody say, I love buckwheat. But the chicken should be easy to switch out for you. You only need to substitute goat or mutton or rabbit. Do I have to eat those to be healthy? Like, is yeah. it one of those things? Oh, no. You should really stick to what they say. Okay. So I can't keep up this kind of voice for my whole segment because <laughs> the blood type diet is so bad. I really don't want to bury the lead here. This one is super bananas. Super bananas. Which, by the way, are fine for your blood type, Laura. Woo-hoo! 
But Jim, Ashlyn and I should avoid them. <laughs> well, unless you're a secretor, Laura. Not In which case, they're neutral for you. It's okay. Secreting we'll get... what? Well, we'll get to that. So same for Jim and same for me. But for Ashlyn, whether you're a secretor or not, they're right out. No bananas. Okay. I, don't, I don't like them that much. But there's some <laughs> banana bread upstairs, so. Yeah. <laughs> so what the heck does this all mean? Mm-hmm. Well, nothing. <laughs> That's easy to say, but let's unpack this diet system and see what all of this nothing boils down to. Firstly, Laura, you're B positive. So what's everyone else's blood type? I'm A positive. I scored very well on my blood test. <laughs> Ashlyn? A, B positive. And I'm A negative, which both describes my blood type and my personality. Uh. <laughs> so we do seem to have a bit of a spread here in the room, and we're only missing someone with type O blood. So we'll keep, we'll keep these blood types in mind for later. Do your like RH factors not matter? No. When you make up stuff, you get to decide <laughs> what matters and what yeah, doesn't. Yeah, but I figured they would like spread it out more by this using This isn't made up. This is science. Let's get to the oh, science, Laura. Science. I'm looking forward. So this is going to radically change our lives. So let's discuss the science. So the blood type diet was developed in the mid-1990s by Dr. Peter Diadamo. I didn't realize it was that recent. Yeah. He's a doctor, but that's doctor of naturopathy. Just mm, putting that out there. Doctor of naturopathy. Yeah. Mm. We just, I didn't want to leave any confusion about that. So to make a long story short, because seriously, explaining this diet philosophy takes about 10 pages on its website, your blood type determines what you should eat based on a heaping helping of eugenics. Oh, oh Jesus. <laughs> your blood type determines where your ancientiest ancestors came from, and therefore you should eat what made up the basis of their diet. Wait, what? Your blood type determines where your ancestors came from? Oh, yeah. What? Oh, we're getting there. Okay. Sure. More science. So folks with type A blood, like Gemini, should, according to the Blood Type Encyclopedia, which was also written by Diadamo, eat mainly vegetarian, practice calming exercise like yoga or tai chi, and because we have low lev levels of stomach acid, we should chew our food more than people with other <laughs> blood types. Low levels of stomach acid, eh? Yes. Well, I guess I can go off those proton pump inhibitors I take every day. <laughs> we are also sensitive listeners. <laughs> and we shouldn't eat when we are anxious. So I should never, ever eat. Yeah. <laughs> so blood type A is referred to as the agrarian or cultivator. It is the oldest blood type. <laughs> so type B blood, Laura, mm -hmm. it mutated into being in the Himalayan highlands. Really? Yep. And was swept out around the world by the Mongol hordes. Okay. So because of this, people with this blood type easily adapt to change, even in their diets. This blood type is referred to as the nomad. Okay. Mm -hmm. So according to Diadamo, a healthy type B living right for their own type tends to have fewer risk factors for disease, tends to be more physically fit and mentally balanced than any of the other blood types. Go Laura. Mentally yeah. balanced. Type Bs tend to have a greater ability to adapt to altitude and interestingly are statistically the tallest of blood types. <laughs> Who did these analyses? Diadamo. Oh, so, as I said before, lentils, tomatoes, peanuts, and sesame seeds are all no-no foods for those with type B blood. And so is chicken, because chicken contains a type B agglutinating lectin. This lectin is so bad for those with type B blood, it can lead to strokes and immune disorders. Mm. Folks with type B blood should participate in exercise that challenges both their physical and mental capabilities, like martial arts or golf. <laughs> or tennis. So, folks with type AB, like Ashlyn, are adapters. They can eat and behave both like A's and B's. So you can either have vegetarian... Vegetarian or adaptable? Yeah. That seems odd. Well, this is why you're nicknamed the Enigma. 
the enigma is, can you think of a better name for this uh, blood type group? No. No. <laughs> okay, so do I get to eat everything they both eat, or do I have to avoid everything they both avoid? You have to avoid everything they both avoid. Oh, crap. <laughs> Don't worry. On this website, it has a handy chart where you type in the food type, mm-hmm. and it'll tell you whether you can eat it or not. Y- you'll, you'll enjoy this, Ashlyn. Type AB, you have low stomach acid and an adaptation to meats. So your, your type is also way more reactive to those pesky leptins than other blood types. I would also like to go off of my proton pump inhibitors if, in fact, I have low stomach acid. <laughs> then you just need to eat according to your blood type. And eat all the meat? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, chicken all the time. <laughs> so type O folks should avoid carbohydrate, which is fitting with their hunter nickname. Something about how the antibodies from both A and B bloods interact and turn those carbs straight into fats. It was a lot of mumbo-jumbo, and I think that's what he said. Okay. Sure, why not? So many grains also contain those lectins, that's that word again, that can ramp up the type O immune system, resulting in unwanted inflammation and autoimmunity. Autoimmunity? Mm-hmm. So I've mentioned these lectins a couple of times. Lectins are the big bugaboo of the whole blood type diet. When we were discussing this, uh, Laura explained it to me as lectins are the new gluten. Yeah. So in real science, lectins are, <laughs> lectins are a class of proteins, usually of plant origins, that bind to sugars and cause agglutination of particular cell types. Yay, there's something we do. In the blood type diet, lectins bind to certain foods based on your blood type, and that binding, likened to suction cups, makes the lectins bind to certain organs of your body and causes them to work incorrectly. On the Blood Type Diet website, under the heading, Lectins, a Dangerous Glue, Dr. Diadamo tells the story, and I quote, You may remember the bizarre assassination of Georgi Markov in 1978 on a London street. Markov was killed by an unknown Soviet KGB agent while waiting for a bus. Initially, the autopsy could not pinpoint how it was done. After a thorough search, a tiny gold bead was found embedded in Markov's leg. The bead was found to be permeated with a chemical called ricin, which is a toxic lectin extracted from castor beans. Ricin is so potent in a gluten that even an infinitesimally small amount can cause death by swiftly converting the body's red blood cells into large clots, which block the arteries. Ricin kills instantaneously. Wow. So because ricin is a lectin, all lectins are bad. Mm-hmm. So we shouldn't eat plants? But they're supposed to be vegetarian. But it depends on what lectins bind to your blood cells and hold things to your different organs. So incompatible lectins may be causing you problems if you suffer from any of these symptoms. Bloating and flatulence after meals. Changes in bowel habits. Achy joints and muscles. Hormonal fluctuations. Like most people have people on a regular on basis. A, yeah, up and down. Okay. How about skin eruptions? Do you ever get skin eruptions? <laughs> I'm assuming they mean blows off. <laughs> and fatigue and tiredness. Oh, yeah. I think tomorrow morning Laura's going to have a lectin problem. Oh, God. But luckily, diadamo has lectins for each blood type. And they're harmful because lectins are all shaped differently, grab onto different fats depending on your blood type. Sure, that seems legit. Diadamo doesn't want you to worry about the super technical information about lectins that can be found elsewhere on the internet. <laughs> because he's done the hard work for you and devised a natural product called Deflect that you can buy to counteract the lectins that are harmful for you. Okay. The other big point in this diet is whether or not you're a secretor. It sounds really dirty, but it's, it's only about whether or not your blood secretes blood type antigens into other bodily fluids like saliva. Apparently, because of reasons, it's better to be a secretor because it protects your immune system, I guess. And you can find out if you're a secretor by getting a handy testing kit from Diadamo's website. 
and buy his book, Live Right For, that's the numeral for, your type, mm. to find out more about why it's important. In other words, that information was behind a paywall, and I didn't feel like searching for it. Mm-hmm. So there's more information about this diet, like lectin blocking and natural cures for seasonal allergies. But it's a lot of gobbledygook wrapped up in pseudoscientific words. It's borderline eugenics, with some Ayurvedic ideas thrown in for good measure. According to his site, Diadamo is currently busy developing software to help naturopathic knowledge. The blood type diet... <laughs> what? Yeah. He is writing software and apps to, to help naturopathic knowledge. Yeah. So the blood type diet forums have also been taken offline on the site, but they have been replaced with a garland of gratitude for the good doctor. <laughs> his CV is also on the site. I can't let this part of his bio pass unquoted. Peter Diadamo is a naturopathic physician who is also an author, researcher, educator, Ivesian, amateur horologist, budding software developer, and air-cooled enthusiast? What? He is considered a world expert in glycobiology, principally the ABO, ABH, blood groups, and the secretor FUT2 polymorphisms. It actually says FUT. So he is truly a renaissance man for our times. So, why is this diet bullshit? Well, for a lot of reasons, including ones that are similar to why the paleo diets are bullshit. We are not products simply of our blood type. Food works the same for most people, independent of where their ancestors were born, well, with some exemptions like dairy, as we talked about earlier. It's expensive, it's alarmist, and it causes people to restrict their intakes of different foods. It doesn't allow for personal tastes or ethics regarding food. Any weight loss occurs because the diet is very restrictive in what people can eat. Same as all these other systems we're looking at. Mm -hmm. So in 2013, a major review of hundreds of studies concluded that there has not been a single well-designed study that looked at the health effects of this blood type diet. One of the studies that found a relationship between blood types and food allergies actually contradicted the blood type diet's recommendations. <laughs> in a large observational study of 1,455 young adults eating a blood type A diet, so lots of fruits and vegetables, mainly vegetarian, they had better health markers. Mm -hmm. But this effect was seen in everyone following the type A diet, not just individuals with type A blood. <laughs> so that's Who would have thought? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That stands up to reason, though. Eat less processed foods and more fruit and veg, and you may present as more healthy. As we've talked about, just eat more healthfully. <laughs> the conclusion of the 2013 review was as follows, quote, No evidence currently exists to validate the purported health benefits of blood type diets. Oh, Lauren, thank you for covering that. I am so glad again that I didn't have to do that one. There's so much more detail. And oh, we'll there's link, so much. We'll link to the site in the show notes. And it's, it's a fun way to spend an afternoon of, can I eat this thing? Oh, I bet. I bet. Very briefly, with the lectins question... Uh, you had said that I had said <laughs> they're the new gluten. That's something that's been floating around in dietitian circles. Most lectins will be destroyed in your food if you mm -hmm. soak and or cook it. So soak and or cook your beans thoroughly. Same thing with grains and you'll be fine. Don't yep. don't worry about it. Like, just don't. There's an alarmist picture on this website when he talks about the dangerous glue. It's a blood cell. And then a blood cell covered in lectins. Ooh. This is your blood cell on lectins. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so I figured out the show. Laura saw a headline, did no research, and then assigned us three very research-intensive segments and 
quit show together. <laughs> she has to go back to work. <laughs> yes, in my defense, I go back to work tomorrow. After toddler brain. Second of all, I have done years of research. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was funny after every segment. Thank you for researching that so I didn't have to. <laughs> And yours was like, I didn't buy the book, I didn't do this. <laughs> hey, I'm just laying it on the table here. I love it. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining me. I love talking about nutrition, and I love when you guys like to talk about nutrition with me because it's so much fun. I hope to do it again. Uh, is there anything else anybody wanted to add? Andrew Wakefield is human garbage. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, everyone, we've had a lot of fun. Thank you to all of my co-hosts today. This has been Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Have a great night, everyone. Good You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James. And this episode was edited by Jem Newman. All of you. I mean, I love you, but geez. <laughs> Today on the show, we'll be discussing fad diets. Fad diets or fad diets? It's kind of like how on that Star Trek The Next Generation episode, everybody keeps saying Tin Man. Not Tin Man? Fad diets. <laughs> Let it go, Jim. <laughs> So, so my understanding is that, um, uh, <laughs> Jim has no understanding. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Does, doesn't matter. Okay. Move on. Holy crap. That was a half sorry. hour segment. You're heading into gem territory. It's okay. There's a lot of work. I won't do it again. Well, Jim, that was really comprehensive. Thank you so much for reading that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be diplomatic here and show support to my husband, and you guys just laugh. Oh, it's funny because it's so transparent. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. It was comprehensive. Mm. You all. <laughs> because okay. the look on your face the whole time you were watching him. It's like, why are you still talking? <laughs> Well, I, just, I could see show. his screen. I could see how many more words there were left to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, Ashlyn, are we having a surprise episode next month? I never think about this in time. <laughs> <laughs>